Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss training concepts, interview behavior experts, and explore how to deepen the relationship between dogs and their people. So I'm Kayla Fratt, and I run Journey Dog Training in Missoula, Montana, and remotely online. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Ursa, of Canis Major Dog Training. Hi there. So Ursa and I are back for the uh, third round of myth busting. Um, We've had so much fun with the first two that we're just going to do another one Um, today. There may be more to come. We'll see what else keeps coming to mind. Um, The myths keep coming. (laughs) They really do. There's just, there's a lot of flim flam out there about dog training. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) A lot of like they even take on a life of their own over time. Mm -hmm. Like as people repeat them and hear them and put their own spin on them. It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, the mythology of dog training is fascinating. And there's always, um, I think we're actually going to touch on this um, in one of our myths, but it's always interesting to me a little bit where sometimes like some of these tips work, but not for the reason you think they do, um, yes. which is always yes. really, really um, interesting. And I think it's part of why uh, why they don't stay around. So sometimes the why is incorrect, but the actual thing that you do mm-hmm. um, can still sometimes work, which is always exciting. Or so, seem to work. Yeah. yeah. Um, So let's dive right into it with a question about separation anxiety. So one that I hear all the time is that greeting your dog enthusiastically when you come home from work will create separation anxiety or ignoring your dog when you come home from work is important for treating separation anxiety. So kind of two sides of the same coin there. Ursa, what do you have to say about that one? Well, I want to preface this by saying that I am not an expert in separation anxiety. It's it's not really my wheelhouse. I um, specialize in aggression. Um, I've treated separation anxiety over the past, and I've I've um, kept myself you know up to date on what the sort of most uh, modern treatments are. But I don't don't consider myself an expert, and I do tend to refer out Sepping's cases. Um, but uh, having said that, you know I do know about dog behavior. And one of the first things that I always think about is, is there evidence? Do we have evidence to show that, the, that a link exists and, and at least take an educated guess about what the mechanism would be for this, um, this contingency, this association? And the, the big red flag to me is we don't, we don't have any evidence showing that there's a link there. And I can speak anecdotally, um, you know, which I know is anecdotally, but you know, I've been training for 20 years and, and thousands or tens of thousands of dogs. I have um, a lot of clients that that do greet their dogs enthusiastically and there's never been a link. There's never been like a pattern that I could um, perceive. I feel like the don't greet your dog um, because it will create separation anxiety stems from the same mindset as don't comfort a dog who's afraid of, of something, a thunderstorm mm-hmm. or whatever, because it's the idea that you can reinforce an emotion because yeah. separation anxiety is based out of emotion. It's the dog that is scared or worried about being alone. Um, and you, you, you can't reinforce an emotion. Um, an emotion is triggered by a context um, and it's not something that we have any evidence to show that dogs can just spontaneously feel something um, out of context, like create the feeling out of context. So I think it probably stems from that sort of same mindset of like, oh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to reinforce this behavior when they're really talking about an emotion that's causing the behavior. So um, 
you know, that's sort of my, my take on it. We just don't have anything to, to show that there's any kind of connection there. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I would second that. And um, we talked about whether or not you can or should comfort a dog during a thunderstorm or other scary things, I think, in our first myth-busting episode. So be sure to go back to that for another good discussion on this topic. Um, But yeah, as far as I know, and I've done quite a bit of research on a lot of these things, I have a Google Scholar alert set up for dog training and I'm kind of always (laughs) flipping through, you know, what the science, what the scientists are looking at with dog training. And um, to my understanding, um, there have been studies that have looked at factors that influence separation anxiety. Um, And whether your dog sleeps in your bed or whether your dog... um, is greeted enthusiastically by you when you return home. Those have never really borne out in the research on um, whether or not those are going to create or influence separation anxiety. Um, I believe that the biggest factors that those studies tend to find are more along the lines of dogs that have been rehomed multiple times. Um, Mm. Yeah. Which makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, And then I, I, I think there are Actually, at least one of the studies, I believe, and I'm going to try to dig these up because I don't have them in front of me. At least one of the studies, I believe, actually found um, sex differences, which was interesting. And I, and I don't remember which way it went. But um, And we'll link to all of those once I've dug them up. But um, the point being, um, when people have actually done pretty intensive research on separation anxiety, um, what they find is that you know, owner behavior as far as greetings and sleeping together and whatnot doesn't influence it. There's actually a study that just came out last week about separation anxiety. Um, that kind of, once again, for us drove home the point that medication is one of the most important factors for resolving separation anxiety. Um, this was a really interesting study and I, I don't mean to be throwing a lot of shade here, but the study was looking at different training styles. So balanced versus positive reinforcement trainers and what they recommend to resolve separation anxiety. And the paper basically came down on the side of balanced trainers per their study were much, much less likely to recommend involving a veterinarian and involving medication. And that led to poorer outcomes and welfare concerns um, for dogs with separation anxiety. So that was really interesting to read. Um, hmm. So yeah, um, cool. And that was with Australian dog trainers, but I, and I will link to link to all of those studies, um, in our show notes. All right. Well, I think we've debunked that one. Probably. I feel good about that one. <laughs> I feel good about that one. So our next one, um, that I'll let you talk about is something that we hear pretty often and I will, so I'm going to tell on myself, I've said this in the past, mm-hmm. um, to clients, you know, always end a training session on a good note. And I, I think it's well-meaning for me. It was definitely well-meaning because there's that idea that like you want the dog to feel good about the training and you want the owner to feel good about the training. But what do you think? Always end a training session on a good note? Yeah. uh, (laughs) I think it's a great rule of thumb. And when I give this advice, because I also have given this advice, what I more mean is quit while you're ahead. Yes. (laughs) And so this one actually came up. I was listening to Sarah Streming's episode um, on proofing last night um, on Cogdog Radio. So be sure to check that out. Again, we'll link to it. Um, And they were talking about this a little bit. And I texted Ursa on the spot being like, we've got to talk about this tomorrow. Um, (laughs) And the point that they made and the point that I want to make, um, again, um, is that The idea, again, is quit while you're ahead. So if you're doing a training session and you're making it a little bit harder and a little bit harder and a little bit harder and your dog is still doing well, 
at some point you need to stop. Um, and you right. want to try to stop before your dog starts failing over and over and getting really frustrated. Um, and where this, this advice falls apart and to me becomes a myth is then when people become really desperate to dig themselves out of a hole when their dog is right. frustrated, <laughs> their dog has already failed multiple times. And yeah, and you're trying to end on a positive note when you just need to end the training session. And if your training session is already falling apart, so let's give a more concrete example, reactivity. This is one where I see this all the time. And it's really important with these emotional um, things that, you know, these training sessions that can be upsetting for the dog um, is you're out, you're doing a parallel walk. So you've got a neutral dog on the opposite side of the road, you're walking, um, and the dogs are doing well, you're treating them every time he looks at the dog and then back at you, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then a dog pops out from behind a hedge and starts barking at you guys. Your dog um, has a meltdown, you know, is barking back, lunging, salivating, pupils dilated, all that good stuff, all that bad stuff. Right. And then you are determined to salvage that training session. So you just stay out and you just keep trying to get your dog to go back to being relaxed around the original neutral dog that you were working on. And what I would say in that situation is if your dog is already that upset, in most cases, it's probably best to just go home, just cut your bail. losses. Yeah, just bail. bail. Yeah, um, I agree. And I also think, you know, it's worthwhile to point out a distinction between um, BMOD and training. So in BMOD, where we're working with a dog that has... And BMOD is behavior modification. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> behavior <laughs> modification. Um, we're working with a dog that has a trigger that causes um, a behavior rooted in like a, a, a bad emotion to use a you know, colloquial, colloquial term. Um, so aggression, fear, anxiety. Um, once the dog goes over threshold, so once the dog is triggered to show that, um, that response, it's really hard physiologically for them to come back down quickly. Um, and so I, uh, I completely agree in those situations. It's better to back off and give your dog some time to recover. Because it, you have to think of it like when we encounter something scary or threatening or fearful, like, you know, um, like somebody, you think you're going to get mugged, right? You're walking at night and you think you're going to get mugged and you have that rush of emotions and adrenaline, whatever that takes time to come back down from. Um, in training, we're not working as much with, so training means like just teaching a, a behavior, sit down, yeah, stay, teaching whatever. About the yeah. 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 Um, we're not really working so much with emotions, but dogs can still feel frustration. And I think that good trainers are good at using just enough frustration to push the dog a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But it's easy to go from a little bit of frustration that challenges the dog to a ton of frustration that makes them not want to participate. And so you have to be really cognizant of where that line is um, because frustration is an emotion. Um, so, you know, we're always looking at sort of balancing between pushing the dog a little bit and pushing them to a little bit enough to make progress and pushing them so much that they fail and get frustrated and don't want to train or they fail and they have, you know, a, a negative reaction and then they have trouble succeeding after that. So I think in mm -hmm. both cases, it works a little bit differently, but I, I believe that your um, advice still stands, which is quit while you're ahead. We're trying to quit yeah. while you're ahead. <laughs> yeah, and if and if you're already falling down down the hole, then just like just just bail. Mm -hmm. It's fine. 
Um, Cut your yeah, and I, I would even say, you know, this has been popping up in my agility classes with Barley, um, where my agility instructor has been really ha- working on having me not stop and fix Barley at all. Um, and just working on getting my handling right and rewarding him regardless of whether or not he makes a jump. And part of what she's looking at there is um, she doesn't want me to accidentally teach him to spin and look back at me all of the time, which is a pretty common problem with agility dogs. And Border Collies can then just start spinning and barking and spinning and barking and spinning and barking. No way! Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, you know, it's kind of a similar thing. Like it's really hard for me to then still want to throw a big party for him and reward him when he, you know, ran around a jump instead of going over it. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it's not his fault that I handled him poorly in a way that made him mm-hmm. not take the jump. Um, yeah. and, uh, yeah, again, just we'd, I'd rather, we'd rather quit while we're ahead, reward the dog anyway, and then go back and fix it as much as you can later. Um, which I think is, you know, you you can always just go back and train another day. Um, and your dog's attitude should be more important than whether or not a given training session goes well. So just try to salvage the attitude, salvage the dog's willingness to learn, and you can work on that Mm -hmm. skill again later. One thing that I tell a lot of my clients is when you hear that little voice in your head, that says, let's just see if this works. <laughs> like, <laughs> or let's just, just one do more. <laughs> just one more. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Let's just do, let's just try one more. Like if you're not, if you don't feel certain that your dog is going to be successful, stop. Like that should be a, a stop sign in your mind to at the very least step back and reassess. Like, why do I feel so uncertain about this? Like what in the context is making me feel like I'm not confident my dog is going to be successful. Um, and, and don't listen to that voice that tells you to push, push, push. Like if you're not raising criteria mm-hmm. in a, in a systematic way, I think that you're setting yourself and your dog up for failure at some point. Um, so yeah. yeah. So cool. That's a good one. That was a really good one. And yeah. like I said, one that yeah, I've definitely been guilty of in the past. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, it's still, I think it's still, kind of blanket advice that to a degree stands it just where it falls apart as we've said you know 14 times already is if you're already if the training session has already gone bad don't try to get back to good um the goal yeah. is to just end before you go bad <laughs> yeah exactly um, which is hard for humans in general it's so hard i think we're i think we're wired to like push until failure for, for mm-hmm. ourselves too you know yeah. Yeah. Um, a hundred percent. And, and for kind of your average client or novice dog trainer, uh, figuring out how to split and picking up on some of those, uh, more subtle signs that your dog might need a break, um, is really, really hard. Um, so, you know, sometimes I'll do things for my clients of like, yeah, just set a, set a timer, only train while food is in the microwave. Um, you know, yeah. just trying to figure out little ways to ensure that my clients um, are able to stop when they need to, or you know, just count out twenty treats, and when you're out of treats, you're done. Um, because yeah, it's so I use hard a lot of for that. us. Yeah, micro goals. Yeah, yeah. All right, busted. All right, so um, <laughs> kind of amazing that we haven't gotten to this one on all of our uh, myth busting yet. But let's talk about dominance. <laughs> Um, and i feel like i I mean this is its own episode (laughs) oh yeah no 
it would be really cool to get an ethologist on for that one. Um, I've been wanting, I've yeah. been wanting an excuse to talk to Kim Brophy. So maybe we ask her. Um, okay. So, uh, okay, let's see. So let's talk a little bit about some of the common myths that come up with dominance. And the main structure of the myth um, here is that you have to do X, Y, Z, or you can't do A, B, C. Otherwise your dog will become dominant or your dog will be mm. alpha. So a couple of the ones that we've heard <laughs> is that, you know, the humans always have to eat first. The humans have to walk through the doors first. Your dog can't let be on your furniture. Um, your dog can't jump up on, on you and lick your face. Your dog can't uh, solicit attention from you, any of this, or your dog will become alpha. So let's talk a little bit um, about that. Ursa. Okay. <laughs> this is such a complex topic because, um, you know, I think that dominance has become a dirty word in certain parts of the dog training community because of a misinterpretation. And, you know, like I said, we could do a whole episode on this, so I'll try not to go off. I, I'm, this is a topic that I, you know, is near and dear to me as, as it is with you. Um, so I want to start by saying that, yes, dogs do have some loose social hierarchy, but it's very fluid. Um, so, and, and dominance is not a personality trait. So, I think one of the problems is we've gotten the sort of pop science definition of dominance mixed up with its actual meaning as a functional behavior term. Um, <clears throat> and, and whenever that happens, <clears throat> we have a problem. <laughs> so um, like with the word socialization, for example. <laughs> so one of the things that's important to understand is when you have any two animals that are interacting, um, that interact regularly, usually there's they have an agreement about who gets priority access to resources. And that's a social hierarchy. That means that they don't have to have a conflict over every resource. They already have an agreement of like, okay, I get to have this first, then you get it after me. Um, <clears throat> we have no evidence to suggest that dogs in general are trying to ascend any sort of hierarchical ladder within their families um, or trying to vie for um, resources as a mechanism to be able to be in charge. Um, dogs generally just behave because they want something and they want to get it, kind of like kids, you know? And I know I've mentioned before, like I have a five-year-old and it, reminds me a lot of how he behaves. Like if he wants something, he's going to do whatever he can to try to get it. And I would never call him dominant for that. It's just, he's a, a living creature that has a feedback mechanism <laughs> in his brain that tells him like, Ooh, I see that candy. My brain wants candy. I'm going to try to get it. Um, so, uh, and then I would say that the additional piece of this is that, um, you know, it leads to all of these, behaviors that I don't even know if dogs understand the context of like, I'm going through the door first, or I'm eating out of your bowl. Like I, what, what does that mean to a dog? Like, it just means they have to wait to go through the door. Like it, it just means you're eating out of their bowl first. Like we don't really have any evidence to show that that translates to the dog as saying like, Ooh, they're in charge. Right. Um, <clears throat> 
So, and that actually, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here because that was uh, when yeah. I alluded in the introduction to some of these things sometimes working, but not for the reasons we think they do. Um, I often right. think a lot of the obedience structure, learn to earn sort of stuff that comes up when you're trying to quote unquote combat dominance in your dog. Um, can actually, it can actually work, um, but it's not working yeah. because it's influencing some sort of social hierarchy and quote unquote putting your dog in his place. But if you have to teach your dog that to wait, to walk through doors, your dog is learning some amount of patience or impulse control, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Um, and that mm-hmm. is going to result in probably a, a more structured relationship between the two of you guys um, and some better behavior because you're putting some training in there, but it's not dominance that you're actually influencing there. Um, And I know it took me a really long time to kind of get my head around the idea that dominance is a relationship between two individuals rather than a personality trait. And again, I think we can kind of dig into that in another episode at some point, but just know that if that is making your head spin a little bit. Um, (laughs) It made mine spin for a while as well. I don't know why it seems so complicated because now it kind of just makes sense to me, but the idea is, you know, your it's it's not dominance is not a personality trait the way that um, you know friendliness maybe um, or outgoingness or confidence, although those might be related to what we perceive as dominance. Um, but because dominance is kind of, it's a structure, it's a relationship between two individuals as far as who gets access to resources. Um, there aren't really such thing as given dogs that are dominant in all situations. Um, and I think it's always just really important to, to think about the idea that we are the species that is most concerned with climbing a social ladder. And when we project that onto our dogs, we're doing them a disservice because that is something that we do, not them for the most part. One way I, I like to, um, present it or describe it is imagine an animal, like imagine a dog for our example, um, that never interacts with another creature, living creature ever. Like it just lives in the wild on its own in a bubble, in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to describe that animal's dominant? And if so, what would be the personality traits associated with that? Mm -hmm. Like dominance can't exist. Dominance as a personality trait doesn't exist outside of interactions with other animals well it's not a personality trait but like the characteristic that we qualify right as yeah dominant. versus confidence only, around novelty would still exist yeah right only so. exists within interactions with other living creatures so it's a social mechanism not a personality trait and then the other thing that's really important to understand is that um that that interaction is really fluid. So, you know, I talk about um, like when you wake up in the morning and you get up and you get your kids ready for school, you would describe yourself as the dominant one in that relationship, right? You have, you have the sort of hierarchy, mm-hmm. um, the status in that relationship. Yeah. And then you're driving to work and um, you get pulled over by a police officer. And most people would say that the police officer has the status in that relationship. And then you get to work and you report to your boss and your boss has the status. But then one of the people that works for you comes and talks to you and you have the status. So in within the course of those interactions, the the power, so to speak, shifts very frequently from, from interaction mm-hmm. to interaction. So 
nobody has the dominant position in every interaction. Um, so, you know, again, I, I, I get what you're, what you're saying. It can be really hard to wrap your head around it, but I do still think it comes back to in popular terms, we've described it as a personality trait to mean assertiveness or ambition or, um, somebody who's power hungry or whatever. Whereas in ethological terms, in behavior terms, it just means somebody who has priority access to resources and they don't, they shouldn't have to fight to get them because yeah. there's that understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, whew, it's a lot, it's a lot to unravel. Um, yeah. but, and I think there are two uh, things I want to uh, underscore before we're going to go into two other kind of sub myths about dominance, but one being, um, I think it's really important to emphasize that again, dominance is a structure that is made to, avoid violence. So if you're ascribing violent behavior, um, aggression to dominance, um, you're missing the point because the whole purpose of a dominance relationship between individuals is to avoid aggression. That is where dominance is successful. That's where dominance makes sense in quote unquote, the wild. Um, so if you're seeing a lot of aggression, making your point, (laughs) Sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, if you have to keep making your point that you're dominant, you're not, you're not the the dominant one in that relationship or in that situation. (laughs) Yeah. I often kind of uh, bring up the idea of guys in bars um, Mm -hmm. with this, you know, the, the guy who is being braggiest and most aggressive about his social status in a bar, there's a good chance he either isn't as successful as he is, or he's deeply insecure. And either way, um, if, if your dog is doing that, um, responding to your dog's behavior with aggression on your part, um, is not going to help that underlying issue. Um, if that's what you're seeing. The other point I want to make is in studies of free ranging dogs. So dogs that are kind of living outside of human structure. So quote unquote, wild dogs, um, they do not have evidence in those studies um, of clear dominance relationships between individuals the way that we see in baboons, for example. Um, Baboons actually are super hierarchical, which makes sense because they're closely related to us. We like drawing out our dominance structures. You know, we, I mean, think about the succession for the president. We love that sort of stuff. Um, You know, it goes president, then VP, then Speaker of the House, then I think Senate again. I'm not quite actually sure. Um, (laughs) <laughs> Good thing I don't have a civic exam coming up, but I know it's the first three. Um, anyway, the point being, when dogs are free ranging, they don't create these really intensive um, pack structures or troops like you would see in some wild primates that have these really strict dominance hierarchies. So there are places in the wild where we can look out and say, um, and for for some great reading on this, I highly recommend Robert Sapolsky. Um, his book. Mm-hmm that I will behave. link to. No, behave is one that I usually am talking oh. about, but this is a different one. Um, it's one all about his, he did um, studies on how dominant structures affect stress in free ranging baboons. Um, great, great stuff on that. And it really will help you kind of see just how intensive the relationship, the dominance relationships can be in some wild animals. And I found it really interesting to compare that versus how we actually see our dogs interact and see how they're, mm. um, it's very different. Um, so I, I think, again, that's kind of where the pop gets in the way is when we say dominance with dogs and wolves and baboons and humans is all the same thing when, you know, humans are the most hierarchical of those than baboons. <laughs> wolves aren't all that hierarchical right. either. It's much more of a family group and dogs are even 
looser associations than that. So, you know, there's just, there's a lot of layers to debunking this one. Um, but I think the bottom line is dominance does exist, but it's only a relationship. Violence is not generally how dominance is going to be um, enforced. There might be points where that's part of it, but that's not the main thing. Um, and dogs are a lot less dominant um, or hi- hierarchy focused than other species. And we kind of project that onto them. So, Yeah. And I think that <clears throat> it bears mentioning that, you know, we have selected um, dogs as a species over tens of thousands of years, not to, not to challenge, um, you know, when they're, when they're asked to do behaviors or when they're given a job, um, you know, we have for all intents and purposes tried to create an animal that is extremely biddable that doesn't, um, you know, doesn't challenge, I guess, sort of any kind of social order that may be present. Um, and so it's just, it's not really characteristic of a domestic animal. Um, and, and generally in, you know, in in the history of the species of, of dogs, um, animals that challenged when asked to do a job were not, they were cold, they were not bred. Mm -hmm. Um, so we really have worked really hard to remove the characteristic of being, um, <clears throat> I'm going to anthropomorphize a little bit, but being like disagreeable or, or <laughs> you know, however you want to explain it. Um, <clears throat> and we've specifically bred for animals that are just extremely agreeable and extremely biddable. And, um, you know, it's, it's just not a characteristic that we have prized in the past either. Um, and then the last point that I want to make really quickly is I think most, if you're a trainer and you're listening to this, you probably know about, um, Dr. David Meech and the studies that he did. He, he sort of, um, popularized the idea of dominance hierarchy in dogs and has since gone back to say like, wow, I was really wrong about this, but it is kind of the Wakefield study (laughs) in the sense that it was released into the world and people latched onto it. And now there are a lot of people who are refuse to let go of the idea, despite the evidence to the contrary. So um, I think that, you know, if it makes sense, if it's a framework that makes sense to you to explain what you're seeing, it's really hard to go, hmm, I might not be right about this. So it really Mm -hmm. is a good reminder to question the things that um, verify or that sort of reinforce our, our worldview that may or may not be true. So... Yeah, we could we could do a whole episode on this. It's fascinating, um, and as a as a pop culture concept, it's just so pervasive. It's crazy. Yeah. So I, I kind of wanted to dive into two other kind of sub myths within dominance um, that I think are important. So you know, again, some of the eating first, walking through doors first, not letting your dogs on furniture. It might help your dog's behavior because you're creating rules and structure and helping your dog understand causal relationships, learn patience, learn skills, but it's not because of dominance. Um, but another one that, um, we see a lot that I want to ask you about more or so, because you're the one who's lived in a multi-dog household is whether or not you have to support the hierarchy between two dogs. So if you've got, um, conflict between dogs, um, you know, so you've got two dogs in a household that are bickering, arguing, fighting, whatever you want to call it, um, that it is your job as the human to come in and kind of help enforce that power structure. So (laughs) So this is a really interesting one. Yeah. So my first question would be, um, if there's conflict over a resource, 
how would you tell who the dominant one is? Because there's no dog that's clearly getting priority access to resources. So I think most people say like the aggressor is the dominant one, but if they are in this hierarchy where they're supposedly in charge, why do they have to fight for a resource? So there, I don't believe that there is a good way to say like, oh, this dog is clearly the one who gets priority access to resources. And this dog is clearly the one who has to yield because otherwise if that was true, they wouldn't be fighting. Um, yeah. So I think that, the idea that you have to pick one um, to get access to resources first is really problematic because, um, you know, we how do, how do you decide that? Um, I think it's much better to approach it as these dogs have a conflict over resources. So what can I do to help both dogs understand that their own individual behavior is what is going to help them get access to your resource? So how do I remove the conflict? How do I help the dogs understand they don't need to um, fight over this particular resource? And generally, almost always, <laughs> the answer is behavior, behavior training, right? So if one dog is worried about the other dog stealing their bone, we work on some resource guarding or go to place or I separate them while they have high value chew items. Um, if there's a conflict with dogs going through the door, we all wait to go through the door. Like we all exercise impulse control before we get to go through the door. So there are very few problems in a, in a household um, between dogs that can't be at least improved with the introduction of some structure, um, some behavioral contingencies. So you do this, then you get this. Um, in some cases, medication. I know there are lots of intra-household aggression issues that it's hard for us to find a clear trigger. And so we just sort of generally treat, um, you know, the overall behavior and impulse control. But there's literally never been a case where <laughs> there's any evidence to me, at least, that, oh, like this dog is trying to assert its dominance. Because if, again, if there was a dog that knew that they had access to resources and another dog that knew that they were the other dog had priority access. Why are they fighting? Why is there an issue? Yeah. So one thing I do will do is if we have a resource guarding dog, like let's say we have two dogs in a household and one is guarding food from the other. I'll always try to feed that dog second because I want the other dog getting food to predict something good for the resource guarder. So yep. I want this, to so use this that is, classical conditioning. Yeah, exactly. This was another one that I kind of meant as far as like, sometimes some of the things that we you might suggest in the frame of dominance might work, but not for the reasons that we think. So yeah, if you're implementing structure around feeding time, that generally is going to help reduce resource guarding because it helps create some clarity, can reduce stress because stress around who's getting fed when and who's getting fed where and which bowl is mine. Create conflict. Easily yeah. create conflict. Um, and then, yeah, if you're feeding, um, you know, the quote unquote upstart dog that's trying to assert dominance second as a way to enforce that hierarchy, 
that might actually quote unquote work because you're teaching that dog that, hey, when Buster gets food, that means Fido's about to get food. And that can actually effectively counter condition the resource guarding. Um, so it feels like we're splitting hairs here a little bit if this isn't something that you live in, but it is an important distinction. And I think the reason that we always get so caught up or part of the reason I at least personally get so caught up on dominance is because again, yeah. So what we're seeing here is like, yeah, if you think about this through a dominance framework, it might work. But the reason that I get so nervous about dominance is because it very quickly starts justifying violent, um, corrections, from the human end of things um, to enforce that dominance hierarchy. So that's why I think it matters so much because I think there are times where telling yourself a story about what's going on with your dog can be helpful, even if it's inaccurate. This is not one of those times for the most part to me, because if you believe that your dog is being dominant and therefore needs to be put in his place, it is a very small step to then start using some pretty harsh training techniques with your dog. Um, so I think that's why we get so caught up on the idea of debunking. Part of the reason we get so caught up on debunking dominance. Yeah, I think it, it can, if we, if we make a, a story about the mechanism by which something works, we can use that to justify sort of extrapolating that mechanism. And then it gets really murky. Um, because again, you know, we conflate, dominance with aggression and a lot of the time with like physical either assertiveness or even violence. And so if, if we say like, oh, well, dominance, whatever that means worked here. So I'm going to extrapolate it to this situation. And this is how I would interpret it in this situation. So like, if my dog is being aggressive, I'm going to be aggressive back. Um, it's dangerous. It's, it's dangerous. It's not humane. It's usually not effective. Um, other than to maybe suppress behavior. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, I agree. I think, I think you're right. I, I, I would absolutely agree that there are times where, you know, if, if we sort of interpret a dog behavior through our own anthropomorphic lens, it's harmless, but this is not one of those times because it can just be, it, you can run with it and, and the results can be really devastating, really, really devastating. Yeah. I'm thinking of one um, client in particular who um, their dog had a, a massive bite history, all of them provoked. So it was a, he was a resource guarder. He had handling sensitivities. And um, <clears throat> the trainer before me showed up at the client's house wearing elbow length um, leather bite gloves and literally just provoked the dog until he gave up. Like he, he just collapsed. Like he couldn't, couldn't bite the guy anymore. And the trainer was like, well, he was just dominant and now I've forced him to submit. And the dog went on to bite, I don't know, three or four more people after that. Oh my God. So, you know, telling a story about like this dog is biting people because it's dominant led to the abuse of this dog. Um, and so, yeah, in that case. And other people continuing to get bit. Yep. So it was extremely harmful in this case. Whereas, um, you know, just going up the humane hierarchy and following that, um, that path led to extreme success for this dog. Um, awesome. so, you know, I know that's a one-off case, but like an example of where buying into that idea was just traumatic for the, uh, the yeah. dog and the owners and the other people that got bitten. So yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Getting bitten by dogs. <laughs> no, no. Um, so 
So the last kind of sub-myth within dominance um, that I wanted to touch on today was, because, and I've had several people um, actually in the last like month comment, co- contact me about this issue, is when their dog is aggressive towards the child in the home, there's this perception that it is because of a dominance struggle. Um, you know, the dog is trying to assert himself over the new pup in the house. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> more or less a direct quote from a client and we're working on it, you know, oh, yeah. we, you know, we're, we're, we're getting there. Um, and it, it's, it's going to be fine. Um, but, uh, <laughs> again, I think where, where this one comes down to is it's putting this dog in this box of the dog is behaving aggressively because the dog has these aspirations of control over the house, um, which just isn't what's going on. And then again, if, it, it can lead towards these really problematic, like, does the kid then need to be the one who's being violent towards the dog in order to assert dominance, which then, um, you know, puts this kid in a really scary, dangerous situation. And is, I mean, is yeah. that really a lesson you want to be teaching a child about how to interact with, um, mm. others, uh, Mm-hmm. So I don't know, Ursa, you're the one with a child here. Um, so I don't know if you've got, um, you've probably got more to say on this, but it is just, it's one that makes my eye twitch a little bit um, because it's just, it's such a common misconception and it so, so easily can go so wrong. And dogs and kids are something that unfortunately I've, I've got a ton of clients um, on that topic lately. And um, it's, it's a scary, it's a hard thing to work through. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it just goes along with everything we've talked about that we dominance isn't the mechanism that drives most behavior in dogs. Um, it's either getting something they want or getting away from something they don't want. And I think it, the majority of cases where we're seeing a dog show aggressive behavior towards a child, <clears throat> it's because, and, and I would say it's largely either dogs that have never been around children. So they don't have kids in the household and then they meet kids somewhere or somehow, or, um, dogs that, uh, the family has a baby and the dog's fine until the baby starts being really mobile. Um, and I Mm -hmm. see that really often. So it's interesting because I'll get a lot of people who reach out and they say, Oh, we're about to have a baby. What do we do to get ready? How do we get the dog prepared for the baby? And you don't usually have to prepare a dog for an infant. You have to prepare them for a toddler. Um, because toddlers are loud, messy, unpredictable, um, scary looking. If you've never been around one, (laughs) like there are plenty of people (laughs) who are afraid of children. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and even my, yeah, right. Even my dogs who were, um, you know, not, I can't take the credit for this, but they were very well socialized. I got them out of their socialization period, but extremely well socialized and friendly to children and friendly to people and dogs and whatever, even they had, you know, an adjustment period when my son was learning how to walk and crawling and grabbing things and exploring the world through, you know, touching Mm -hmm. and grabbing and smacking and whatever. It was an adjustment period for them. And I was lucky that, um, you know, I was able to manage it without, um, blaming my dogs for their reactions. But, um, it really is a matter of kids act scary to dogs who aren't used to that. And mm-hmm. they're using aggression as a way to try to put distance between themselves and the scary thing and warn them off. Um, you know, that's how dogs say, I'm not comfortable with this. Stay away, growling, snapping, biting. Um, yeah. And if the dog is put in that situation enough times, they're going to do it preemptively. 
they're going to say, okay, here comes that kid. I'm going to scare him off early because last time it didn't work when I waited. So, um, yeah, that's not, that's not a dog trying to assert its dominance. That's a dog trying to say like, I really need space and I don't want you to come close to me. Um, yeah. So again, there's, there's no mechanism by which we can, we can say with validity, oh yeah, the dog's trying to be in charge of the child. Um, but there is a very clear mechanism by which we can show, actually, the dog's just really uncomfortable. And if we help him feel comfortable, if we help him understand, you know, you're going to be protected, you're going to be advocated for, um, here's how you can feel good about this. Here's how you can help check yourself out of the situation. All of those things work very well to help dogs become more comfortable with children. So, um, yeah, yeah, which I, I think, again, is where this this myth can be so harmful is, it's so trying to enforce some sort of dominance hierarchy between a dog and a child is so opposite of what needs to be happening. So it's a little bit different from our resource guarding example where, you know, in theory that can work sometimes in this case, you know, teaching your dog that being, that being near the child is a predictor of aggression from his owner, i.e. corrections. Um, is is so the opposite of what needs to be happening in order to teach your dog to not be scared of the child. Um, and I'm going to link again in our show notes. This is going to be a very linkful show notes. Um, I actually have a <laughs> webinar. Um, <laughs> I have a we have a webinar on journeydogtraining.com that's five bucks on bringing home a baby and preparing your dog for um, for a baby's arrival, one of my um, trainers at Journey Dog Training had a baby earlier this year, so she's been doing a bunch of amazing work on on that. And then we also have a full six week course on keeping kids safe and dogs happy. So if this is something nice. that you or a family member or a friend is concerned with, both of those are super duper affordable. Throughout the whole time that COVID is going on, they're both fifty percent off. So the webinar is five bucks, the six week course is thirty bucks. They're normally ten bucks and sixty bucks, so still pretty cheap. Um, but if you know someone who's struggling with this, um, and this is actually generally when I get a client who's reaching out to me for this issue, I actually send them there first. Um, and I say then, you know, we can talk and do one-on-one stuff after you guys have worked through this or while you guys are working through it, but you know, you're going to get way more bang for your buck just going through the six week course, (laughs) um, versus paying hour by hour. Um, yeah. One thing, um, you know, that I wanted to add was, um, you'll hear us say a lot, never punish a growl. And the reason we say that is because if a dog is growling, again, they're trying to communicate. I'm worried about this. I feel threatened. I'm scared, etc. cetera. Um, <clears throat> that holds true. Even if you choose to view that through a dominance sort of lens, because if you're punishing a growl, you're still telling a dog that growl isn't going to work. You're going to have to try harder. And so dominance has a way, like if you, if you use that approach, it still has a way of escalating because if a dog is really determined, you know, to get their point across again, if, even if you're ascribing it to dominance, um, and growling doesn't work, they're still going to escalate. They're going to keep escalating. And so what I see a lot with clients who have tried to apply, you know, this idea of like, well, I have to physically dominate my dog, um, is it escalates. It continues to escalate to the point where someone actually gets hurt because it's not helping change how the dog feels about whatever the conflict is. 
um, it's validating their concern about it and, and showing them you're going to have to push harder. You're going to have to try harder. You're going to have to yell louder to get your point across. So, you know, again, I think that that ideology pushes us to, you know, keep escalating when we should be de-escalating, which can be extremely harmful, both physically and psychologically for everyone involved. You know, it's really traumatic to have your own dog bite you or try to bite you. Um, And it's traumatic for the dog too. So I think it's just so unhelpful in terms of, um, you know, encouraging people to escalate when they should be backing down and taking a step back and going, okay, why is my dog actually doing this? So just another really point, a point that I think it's really important to make. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well said. So one more, and then we, we need to wrap up. One more. Yeah. One more. There's always, there's always one more. Uh, there's literally always one on. more. Yeah. So I'll, I'll introduce this one if you want, so you can talk about it. Sure. Does that sound good? <laughs> yep. Okay. So, and I actually think this one falls under, it, it's dominance adjacent. It's dominance yeah. adjacent because it, um, it's still, okay, we'll just all introduce it and then we can talk about that. So mm-hmm. um, the idea that pinch collars or um, corrections, or I'm even going to add things like grabbing the dog's muzzle. Um, <laughs> we can talk about that uh, or, or um, biting the dog's ear all serve as um, what the dog interprets as a correction from the mother, from their mother. So you're emulating what the, the mother dog would do to correct a puppy. So <laughs> Kayla, bring it home for yeah. us. <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, full disclosure, right? this is how this we is trained easy. the first dog I ever grew up with. Um, so this, this was my introduction to dog training as a fifth grader was, um, you know, mm. like gra- grabbing the dog by the muzzle and growling in her face, um, which mm-hmm. I'm, I just don't understand how this dog never bit us in the face. Um, <laughs> Maya, rest in peace, was a, a very gem. tolerant dog. <laughs> I mean, she was she was the dog that makes everyone think that like you should have a lab. Um, she right. was perfect in every way, um, despite what yeah. we did to her. Um, and we weren't full on abusive, you know. We didn't use, uh, you know, but it, and, and that's kind of the crazy thing about a lot of this is just how normalized it is, and that I still feel like I can defend it a little bit because it's like, oh well, I've seen so much worse. Um, but okay. So anyway, disclosure aside. So I, you know, this is how I first learned to train dogs and I, uh, luckily moved past that very quickly. Um, but if you actually watch mother dogs interacting with their puppies, first things first, there's very, very little correcting going on. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the very first thing I would say. And there, there was a video that went around a while ago. Um, of a golden retriever retriever dam who was correcting her puppies pretty harshly. Um, and Mm, yeah, it it might've been close to a year ago, but, um, there was a lot of people kind of sharing it around being like, see, um, this is how you correct a puppy. Um, and I have a lot of good friends, breeders, um, some of whom you may remember from our breeder episodes. So Sujan Shelton and Danny Spady both had really great responses to it. Um, along the ideas of this is a really stressed out dam. This is not normal mother behavior. 
this mother dog needs, they need more space. It was a big litter in like a kitchen. Um, they need more yeah. space. The reason this, this mother dog, like it's a welfare concern that this dog is being so aggressive towards her own puppies. Like that is a huge red flag. Yeah. That is not normal mother behavior. Um, so mm. kind of, and this is one of the places where I always go first, because again, I come at things from this kind of biological, ethological standpoint, um, naturally and is looking at like, okay, so if that's the myth, if that's the thing that we think it is, you know, we say then like, great, let's go find examples of whether or not this happens in the wild, quote unquote, um, which, and then the next question we need to ask ourselves is whether or not a dog is going to perceive a human doing that behavior as the same thing. And then the third thing is whether or not humans are going to be skilled enough at emulating that behavior for it to actually be effective. So there's kind of three layers to this. The first layer, um, does this happen? There are times, yes, where you will see dogs put each other's muzzles in their mouths or, you know, kind of correct another dog um, for inappropriate social behavior. But there are a couple key things to note there. One, it's generally not the first response. Um, generally, mm -hmm. that dog has tried avoiding first and then is, you know, doing like a muzzle grab or something. Two, it's pretty gentle. Mm -hmm. It's kind of gentle and firm. And three, mm -hmm. it's in pretty specific social contexts if you watch dogs doing this. So when you see dogs doing like a muzzle grab towards each other, it's usually because one dog is trying to like tug on the other dog's ear um, mm -hmm. or something like that. So then when we try to extrapolate this out to all of these other situations, it's, um, it's not even in a situation where it would make sense for one dog to do it to another dog. So that's a huge issue. So it's rare when dogs do it. They only do it in specific social situations, and it's pretty gentle and firm, and it's not their first line of uh, – it's not the first attempt at dealing with a problem behavior. So um, I, would, I think we can – go ahead. Oh, sorry. I'm, you know, our delay. I don't mean to interrupt yeah, you, but I would also mention that <clears throat> a lot of the behaviors that are, are referenced when people are sort of arguing for this modality is um, – are, are they happen when puppies are still really, really young, you know, yeah. like, Oh, the mother dog, when she's nursing her puppies or when they're weaning or whatever. And that is a very different developmental and learning stage than an adult dog or even an older puppy um, who's in a home without their siblings and without the mother. So like, it's not even in my mind, like a, a, a fair comparison because mm -hmm. the dog's in such a different developmental stage in such a different context that we can't even be sure that it translates or that there's that the mechanism through which the dog is learning as a baby still exists as an adult. Yeah. Um, you know, so like mm -hmm. it's sort of like, you know, we know that there's this socialization window where the brain is sort of very malleable and learning about the environment. And then at a certain point, the socialization window sort of dwindles and, you know, dogs learn things differently after that point. And so I don't even think it's valid to make a comparison between yeah. A mother agree. dog correcting a baby puppy that just opens its eyes and a person trying to use the same behavior on a fully uh, developed, like adolescent yeah. or adult dog. Well, and I think, you know, kind of so. where I was going to go as like that next layer down. So, you know, first layer is how does this actually happen in the wild, quote unquote, you know, which however right. wild dogs can be. But, right. <laughs> um, 
and you know we've seen it it's it's in a pretty different situation um and uh, you know we we will see dogs doing this to each other when they're older as well i just was watching a pair of our working dogs draw wrestling and at what point one of them did kind of put the other dog's head in his mouth and just be like, we're done now. <laughs> um, sure. So, you know, dogs do do this. But then I think the next layer is, will they recognize it when a human does it? And then that third layer is, can a human actually do it effectively? So, you know, I don't know about you, but when I have tried to get a dog to stop mouthing me by putting my hands on his muzzle, um, that tends to make it into more of a game. Um, and I am not able to elicit any sort of um, response from a dog with my hands um, if I do it gently and firmly the way that another dog might do it um, that is close to what I actually want um, so it's just not the best way if a dog is jumping and biting at my sleeves um, and trust me I've tried because I've gotten frustrated too you know we've all done mm -hmm. this where we're just like oh my sure. god stop <clears throat> and like try to yeah. put our hands on the dog's mouth on the dog's face whatever it is I think we've all done that um right and i'm pretty freaking good with dogs <laughs> uh, it's kind of my job and i have not had many cases where that has been successful for me because i am not able to be um, my timing and the firmness and the gentleness is just it's it's beyond what um most of us are able to do um mm. And there are mm -hmm. just so many other easier things to do. So in a case where a dog is jumping and mouthing at your sleeves, which is something I deal with very, very frequently, mm -hmm. dealt with a lot in the shelter. And now I work with, you know, high drive working dogs that always want to get sure. whatever it is in your hand. Um, <laughs> no, uh, the, the response of grabbing them by the face is just so far from being the most effective way to deal with it. So, you know, my ideal situation is just to you know, a teach them to leave it and then work on, you know, sits or downs or something and just get them to do something else instead. Um, but in the moment mm -hmm. with a dog that's totally untrained, you know, I'll just kind of tuck my hands away and, and move away. Um, and, which yeah. is exactly what you see from most socially normal adult dogs as well is their first response when another dog is annoying them is to move away. Um, and when you start yeah. seeing the face, when you start seeing the face grabbing is when that dog has run out of options so for us to try to jump to that as a first step is uh is inaccurate and then the, again that third level is you know does a dog so if whether or not you're capable you know and i think most of us aren't um and then would a dog even recognize that as the same thing um and i think the answer is no um you know your hands are not the same thing as another dog's mouth and please do not try to put your dog's mouth in your mouth because their teeth they have mouths full of knives and you do not um, just, yeah. just don't, don't take this as a, like, oh, so my hands are the wrong thing. So I should use my mouth. That is not what I am saying. Yeah. The first time I had a client tell me that they bit their dog on the ear, their puppy on the ear as a way to get them to stop biting. I was like, you're kidding. Right. I like, I thought it was a joke and, and I mentioned it to another trainer and they were like, oh yeah. Um, that's, that's, I've heard that advice before or whatever. And I was like, you have to be kidding me. <laughs> um, one yep. thing that I wanted to mention is that, um, you know, in a situation where we are reacting to unwanted behavior, as opposed to, you know, sort of being proactive and teaching, um, an appropriate behavior, um, we have to make an on the fly decision about what matters to the dog. Like what is going to matter in a way that they want to avoid this consequence in the future. 
And I think that it can be extremely difficult, especially like you talk about working with really high drive working dogs. Um, they can take a lot. They can push mm-hmm. through a lot of aversive stimulus. And so I think trying to make an on the fly decision about what's going to be aversive enough to this dog that they want to um, avoid it in the future. It's really hard to choose a a reaction that adds something to the equation, like, you know, grabbing their muzzle or, you know, for, for jumping, you'll hear like knee them in the chest or step on their feet or whatever. But if you think about it in terms of the, the function of the behavior, the dog is trying to get something the most parsimonious response is to not let them have it for that behavior. Like when they, when they exhibit that behavior, they don't get what they want. So just Mm -hmm. like you said, you tuck your hands away or you put the ball away or you, you know, like the easiest (laughs) interpretation is I'm not going to let this behavior yield the consequence that the dog wants because then they're going to do it again. Um, and that in, in training, and that's not the whole picture, I obviously like to teach the dog what they can do to get what they want, mm-hmm. but it's so much simpler and more direct and more likely to be successful to just say that behavior makes what you want go away. As opposed to, I'm going to guess mm-hmm. that hands on your muzzle is going to be aversive enough for you to avoid, or I'm going to guess that pinching your tongue or biting your ear or stepping on your feet or whatever, dogs might not care about that stuff, but we know yeah. they care about what they're trying to get. And so removing that is a really simple consequence that we can be pretty sure as long as we're doing it with proper timing is going to have an effect on the behavior. So just from a simple parsimony approach, it doesn't make sense to try to guess what's going to be aversive enough. Just go with what you know the dog is trying to get and don't give it to them unless they're doing an appropriate behavior. Yeah. 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 And just, I mean, there are just so many reasons that it's going to be really hard for you to try to correct another, uh, correct a dog in the way that another yeah. dog would. Um, it's just, yeah. and again, socially appropriate dogs, socially normal dogs are going to avoid first, which is what we're telling you that you should be doing as well. So. Right. Right. They're going to avoid that conflict for sure. And you know, that's the other thing is that um, socially appropriate dogs will continue to engage with another dog as long as they're being appropriate. <laughs> so they're teaching other dogs how to treat them um, in that in that way. And so, you know, I think that we can certainly emulate the mechanisms that dogs use to teach each other appropriate behaviors, but that doesn't mean that we have to follow it through to like an analog where it's like dogs do this. So I'm going to do this exact thing. Like you can take the spirit of it. Okay. If two dogs are playing and one's too rough, the other dog's going to, you know, um, bark and, and go away or whatever. And that's sort of how we came to the, when a puppy nips you yelp and take your hands away. And it's a way to mark the behavior that caused the consequence. And the consequence is I removed myself from interacting with you because it's not pleasant. Um, yeah. so we can certainly I don't look want to at play those mechanisms. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. We can look at those mechanisms and we can use them in our interactions with our dogs, but that doesn't mean that we have to literally do the same thing a dog would because <laughs> we're not built like dogs. Right. Like you said, you know, it's, it's, it's not a one-to-one comparison. So it's a great way to get bitten in the face though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I just, I don't. 
I don't understand. I don't even remember if Maya ever like growled at us once for this. And I mean, we, we were alpha rolling that dog, biting on the ear, growling in her face. Like, I mean, and luckily we were also doing a lot of actually training her to do other things. So I think that we, I don't remember doing that to her anymore after she was probably six or eight months old. Um, yeah. So we weren't trying to do it to an adult dog because she had learned other appropriate ways to work because we, you know, did other things, mm-hmm. but I don't think the growling at her at all was helpful. Yeah. Um, well, then if you get so- the right dog, that stuff works. If you get a, a soft dog that isn't willing to push, that doesn't have an interest in sort of fighting back, so to speak, you can certainly successfully suppress behavior. Um, mm-hmm. But then, you know, I think that gets us into a whole other discussion of because it works as ethical. Just yeah. because it works, does well, that I mean we say, should do you it? Know, I have I have a soft dog, um, and you know mm-hmm. we've we've talked about barley being relatively soft, and for him though, that will pretty quickly translate over into defensive <clears throat> aggression anyway. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. especially on leash, if he really feels like he if he can't get away from something, he will switch over to defensive aggression very very quickly even as a soft dog. So, you know, right. even even right. in these cases where we're hoping that being soft is going to help us, we then have to assume that that soft dog is always going to choose flight or freeze. Um, right. Which is, you yeah. know, not, not a safe assumption to have even with soft dogs, let alone with, um, you know, a dog that might be a, a little sensitive. sharper. Yeah. Right, right, for yeah. sure. And, and yeah, every, and luckily, I mean, Barley and I have has a limit. Uh huh. And, and, you know, and even, even then, like, do you really want to be pulling, um, pulling that much trust out of your bank account and harming that Mm -hmm. relationship? Um, so, Mm -hmm. okay. We should probably wrap it up. Um, probably. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I guess we'll leave. (laughs) So so. I'm Kayla Scott. I run journey dog training. You guys can find me online, um, at journeydogtraining.com. I just hired, um, a couple new trainers because, um, we've been getting a lot of business. So if you guys need to book any remote training sessions, we have a whole team of people who are ready to help you. Um, we also have all those webinars and seminars and whatnot that I've mentioned. So you can check those out at journeydogtraining.com. I'm also available here in Missoula and my, um, my team is available in various places around the world, including the interior of Alaska. So, um, all our Alaskan (laughs) listeners, uh, you can work with Amy. Um, so yeah. And then Uh, Ursa, go ahead. I'm Ursa Acri. I'm the co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado. Um, we are more um, Denver specific, so we serve clients in the Denver area. However, we also offer remote consultations from anywhere in the world. Um, not to take any business out of Alaska, but <laughs> we're happy to help. Um, no, go for it. <laughs> from wherever you may be. And <laughs> you can find, there's plenty to go around, right? Yeah, there's um, tons of people you can in Alaska, find us, right? um you can find us online at canismajortraining.com awesome so before you guys go or before we go make sure you guys are subscribed to canine conversations wherever you're listening um make sure to comment and review um within the app that you're using that's super helpful for us to make sure that other people can find us and uh live laugh and learn with us um and um you guys can always find all the episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com it's canine all spelled out and then convos as in short for conversation.com so you guys can also contact us on facebook 
if you hear something that you think is a myth, if you're like, I'm not sure about that, send it to us. (laughs) Yeah. Send us. um, We will debunk or validate it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we also we've been talking a little bit as we're doing these myth busting things of really enjoying doing um, some of these myths in the vein of you always have to end on a positive note of things that are more common myths within our own community, um, mm. i.e., positive reinforcement trainers. So especially that sort of flim flam. Go ahead and send it to us. Our email is hello at canineconvos dot com. Yeah, so we I are. Think that's not, all for now, folks. Not above debunking our own BS. <laughs> nope especially bs that we also spout sometimes absolutely we are not immune (laughs) all right thanks for listening 